Okay, so we've been covering presuppositional apologetics, and I hope that you've been persuaded that this is a very powerful method of defending the Christian faith. And so what I want to get into today is uh, to answer this question, should we use a presuppositional approach to apologetics and what is the alternative? And I hope that already you've been persuaded that, yes, this is, the, this is a good way to go, just by virtue of the fact that it's powerful, it's extremely powerful. But what I want to suggest to you today is that not only is it powerful, but it's biblical. In fact, I would suggest it's powerful because it's biblical. And I'm going to therefore argue that we actually have a moral obligation to be presuppositional in our apologetic approach. And before I get too much hate mail, let me qualify what that means. I, even if I'm going to get hate mail, I want you to hate me for the right reasons. Um, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that you have to use it each and every illustration that I've used or anything like that. There's, there are many different, there's a lot of freedom within the presuppositional approach in terms of the specific illustrations that we use. But I am going to suggest that the heart of presuppositional apologetics, which is biblical authority, is something that we should all stand on. Many people tend to, when they first hear about presuppositional apologetics, they think, yeah, that's a good tool to put on my belt, right? I've got all these different, I've got, you know, I've got evidential apologetics over here, and I've got this argument that I like to use here, and I've got a teleological argument here, and then presupposition, yeah, that's cool, I'm going to add that to my belt. What I'm going to suggest to you is that presuppositional apologetics should be the belt that holds everything else. Everything that we present ought to be done in a presuppositional way. And again, I'm going to clarify what I mean by that as we go throughout. So what is the alternative? The, the main alternative to presuppositional apologetics is what's sometimes called evidentialism. And uh, I'm going to group into that several different apologetic methods that, that people who hold to them would say, well, no, we're a little different than evidentialists. There's the classical approach and there's the cumulative case and so on. I'm going to put those all under the same umbrella for the sake of simplicity, so we won't be here for an eternity. But um, those are all basically the same in terms of their ultimate authority. They really are. And evidentialism, therefore, is the apologetic method that is used by the majority of Christians. And I'm going to I'm going to bemoan that because I think that's unfortunate. Uh, the traditional method, the Princeton method, classical. Again, there are some subtle distinctions between classical and evidential. I'm not going to get into those. The terminology is unfortunate, very unfortunate, but we're stuck with it because that's the name, right? Presuppositionalists do use evidence, and evidentialists do have their presuppositions, okay? So, again, people think, well, you know, I use a lot of evidence in, when I'm doing apologetics. So do I. I'm a scientist, and I love to bring in scientific evidence, but I do it in a presuppositional way. So the question is not, do you use evidence? The question is, how do you use the evidence. The question is not, do you have presuppositions? Everyone has presuppositions, and many evidentialists are even aware of their own presuppositions, and, and they understand that. The question is, how do you, how do you argue? That's really what it comes down to. So the difference between these two basic approaches, presuppositional and the evidential approach, is how we argue. For the presuppositionalist, the Bible is the ultimate standard for all truth claims, even when we're defending the Bible. And that makes it different from these other apologetic methods. For the evidentialist, evidence, unaided reason, the mind's ability to assess the evidence, is the ultimate standard, at least when we're defending the Bible. Now, I will be the first to concede that many evidentialists will say, no, we understand the Bible is the ultimate uh, foundation for knowledge. But then they would make an exception. They would say, except when you're defending it. 
because when you're defending it, you can't, you can't stand on what you're defending. And I hope that I've convinced you that that's not the case. When it comes to an ultimate standard, you must stand on what, on what you're defending because there is no greater standard to defend it with, if you see what I'm saying. But in any case, you can see why the evidentialists, at least if they haven't really thought through the issues, at least superficially, you can see why they think that way. Oh, yeah, you can't use the Bible when you're defending the Bible. Well, yes, you can. If I was going to defend laws of logic, I would have to use laws of logic to defend laws of logic. There's no doubt about that. If I'm going to argue for the existence of air, I'm going to have to use air to argue for the existence of air. There's no getting around that. And so it's the same way with the Bible. I'm arguing that it's not at all fallacious to, to stand on the Bible while defending it. And we saw last time at least a little bit of how that works out. Presuppositional apologetics uses the Bible as the supreme authority in all matters, including the defense of the faith. And then we invite... We, we present that Christian worldview, and then we invite the critic to stand on that Christian worldview, and we're praying that the Holy Spirit will open his eyes so that he can see the truth of the Christian worldview, and then we do that internal critique of the the unbelieving worldview, showing that it is arbitrary, it doesn't have good reasons, it's inconsistent with itself, and it doesn't make knowledge possible. And we saw how that worked out in the last few weeks. So again, that's that goes along well with the don't answer answer strategy, which itself is in Scripture. And uh, again, you may, have, you may have noticed this, maybe you didn't, but when I mentioned this technique, I keep, I keep citing scriptures because, you see, I believe the Bible is teaching us that we, we should defend the faith in this way. The fact that we're to accept the Bible as our supreme authority, that we're not to embrace the fool's standard and standing on his ground except for the purpose of refuting it, right? We're not to actually stand on his ground. That's biblical, we're supposed to stand on biblical authority, even when defending biblical authority. And doing an internal critique of the un- unbelieving worldview, we're supposed to do that as well. Cast down arguments, every th- high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So it is biblical. Even the AIP checklist, which we covered last week, right? we're to, we're to look for arbitrariness in the secular worldview. Uh, secularists feel very free to be arbitrary. They just believe things for no particular reason. Well, we're supposed to have good reasons for what we believe, and the Bible teaches that. We're supposed to be reasonable. God tells us to come, let us reason together, and, and to have a reason so that when anyone asks you of the hope that's within you, you can give them an answer, a reason of defense. We're not supposed to be inconsistent, right? Inconsistency, if two things are inconsistent, they can't both be true. Not at the same time, anyway, right? And so our worldview needs to be self-consistent, and the Bible is. And the reason... We need to be consistent is because that's that matches the character of God, you see. Our word is not supposed to be yes and no. We're not supposed to contradict ourselves. God doesn't deny himself, and we're to emulate his character, according to Ephesians 5.1. We're to be like God in the way that we think, and so we shouldn't be inconsistent. And the fact that the Bible makes possible those preconditions for knowledge, the fact that knowledge would be impossible apart from the truth of the Christian worldview because the basic reliability of our senses and our ability to reason, which comes from being made in the image of God, these things all presuppose the Christian worldview, and that's what makes science and logic and mathematics and language and anything you can think of. It makes these things possible. Presuppositional apologetics. The Bible should be our ultimate authority in everything we think and do. Is that true? Yes, the Bible should be our ultimate authority in everything we think and do. Apologetics is something we think and do. Therefore, the Bible should be our ultimate authority in apologetics. It's pretty basic, isn't it? Uh, That basic truth is lost on many Christians. Evidentialism, on the other hand, attempts to build a case that the Bible is true without presupposing biblical authority. 
Now, of course, you can't completely do that because once you've assumed laws of logic, you're relying on biblical authority. But at least they're trying to sort of pretend that they're being neutral. The unbeliever is invited to consider the evidence by his allegedly neutral or secular standard and then conclude through proper reasoning that the Bible is true. So the evidentialist would say things like this. It's all about what the evidence says. Follow the evidence where it leads. The problem is evidence doesn't say anything, right? It's not propositional truth. Rocks don't go around saying things. They just, they're there. That's all there is to it. I've seen a lot of galaxies. I've never seen one say anything. And so when people say, you know, this galaxy says the universe is old. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say anything at all. Nothing. People interpret evidence and they do so in light of their pre-existing worldview. And so we need to recognize that. And that's why you can't just throw evidence at people and expect them to convert. Now, again, it's not wrong to show people evidence and how the Bible makes sense of it. But we shouldn't argue that the evidence by itself, without any sort of worldview, just will lead you to Christianity. Because it won't. It won't. Don't get me wrong. God has hardwired us so we can see how the evidence is consistent with the Christian worldview. But apart from that Christian worldview, you couldn't make sense of anything. And the Bible tells us this, that evidence by itself doesn't always convince people, particularly if they have, if it's a worldview issue, right? Now, again, if you and I are, have the same worldview and we have a disagreement about the evidence, I can bring the evidence, and because we have the same rules of interpretation, we should come to agreement. But when the debate is over different worldviews, evidence by itself will not settle the matter. Even the most spectacular evidence you can think of, One of the most spectacular evidences for the Christian faith is the resurrection of Christ. That's a great evidence. Don't get me wrong. Matthew 28, 17, when Christ appears and uh, says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's not surprising, right? Wow, they see the resurrected Savior. But some doubted. Isn't that interesting that in the presence of the resurrected Lord, there were some people who saw him and they still doubted the resurrection. So much for seeing is believing. They saw, they didn't believe. Isn't that interesting? And the Lord himself anticipated that. Because in, uh, in Luke uh, 16, he said to them, that, remember he's talking about uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And he's in the, in the angel, Jesus speaking as the angel here. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises to the dead. Remember the rich man being in hell? He said, go send, go send Abraham back to tell or go back to tell, or Lazarus back to tell my brothers about this place so they don't end up here. And, he, and the, the divine response is, if they don't listen to Moses and prophets, that's the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, they're not going to be persuaded even if someone is raised from the dead. And Jesus himself then demonstrates that because people see him and not everyone believes. Evidentialists say that the natural man, through the use of right reason, right reasoning, following the evidence, will be led to Christianity. That's the key in their view. And so they would say things like this. Yes, Mr. Unbeliever, your mind is capable of understanding the evidence and objectively drawing the right conclusions. You just need to go a little further. You haven't gone far enough yet. You haven't realized that your line of thinking will lead you to Christianity. Uh, Yes, you've basically got the right idea, Mr. Unbeliever. Follow the evidence, but you haven't followed it all the way. Because if you continue going, you're going to see that it supports biblical creation, the Christian worldview, what have you. Yes, you've got the right approach, but you've drawn the conclusion. Yes, you're going the right way, but just go a little further. It seems to me all of evidentialism could be summed up in yes, but. The evidentialist basically agrees that the unbeliever's mind is in a position to determine truth. And uh, and then he's going to act as God's 
defense attorney and say, okay, yes, Mr. Unbeliever, you can be the judge. Your mind is just so superior. You can judge truth. And, and please let me act as God's defense attorney, and I'll show you this evidence. And you can judge for yourself whether or not God really is who he says he is. And that is so backwards from what the Bible teaches about the relationship between the judge and the, uh, the prosecuted, right? I mean, uh, we're the ones who are going to be evaluated. It's our mind that's going to be judged by God's word. Our mind is therefore not in a position to judge God's word. It's by God's word our mind will be judged. What does the Bible have to say about natural man's wisdom apart from the redeeming grace of the Holy Spirit? Are we just incredibly wise and clever? Well, what does God say? Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are, what, brilliant and they're futile. Now, don't get me wrong. People, even who have a secular way of thinking, they can stumble upon some wonderful truths because that's by common grace. It's because they do use God's laws of logic and so on. But apart from God's word, you couldn't know anything at all. Your thinking would be futile. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And I love that because it shows the whole chain of what's happening there. You have these people who have rejected uh, God, they, they, you know, they, they have a futile mind. Their thinking is futile. And why is that? Because their understanding is darkened. Because they're, why is that? But because of the ignorance that is in them. And why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. It's a spiritual condition, you see. And then he goes on to say, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Some people think that, well, no, Dr. Lyle, I was convinced by an evidential argument. Of course, ultimately, I would have to point out you were convinced by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's let's get that straight. But now some of you might say, but no, I, you know, there was this evidence and it led me it led me to God. Well, I think Paul would disagree with you. He says you did not learn Christ in that way by the wisdom of the world. He goes goes on to say for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom what occasionally came to know know God? No, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, that's the Bible, to save those who believe. Isn't that right? But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That may be the most important overlooked passage in all of apologetics right there. That you, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with an unbeliever, you're dealing with someone who cannot, apart from the Holy Spirit opening his eyes, cannot understand the things of God in the sense of embracing them and really, really understanding them. He can have a superficial level of understanding only by God's common grace. So it's not just a matter of differing presuppositions. It is a spiritual matter. It really is. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, in the past, most Christians in our culture have used an evidential approach. They've said to the unbeliever, your mind is in a position to judge God's word. And let me present these evidences. And, and in some cases, the Holy Spirit wins them over anyway. Praise God. I mean, God can use a, a bent stick. There's no doubt about that. And of course he has to because we're all, we're all broken in one way or another. But because of that, we've, we've led people to, to the belief that their mind is the ultimate uh, standard for truth. Isn't that the case? 
Even people who have, whose, whose mind, yes, my mind's the ultimate standard, and I happen to think the Bible got it right. It's pretty good. <laughs> Some people have that, have that belief. They're Christians. Well, that's, I'm glad they're Christians, but you see, they still have the attitude that their mind is the ultimate standard of truth rather than God speaking through his word being the ultimate standard of truth. And so we have, I would say in our culture, we have a generation of Christians whose faith rests on the wisdom of men rather than on the power of God. And, of course, I think a lot of the faith that Christians have, you know, you can have different types of faith. Not all faith saves. Uh, the faith that God gives us saves. But faith that rests on the wisdom of men. You see, if somebody persuades you by some neat scientific evidence or what, what have you that creation's true or that, or that Jesus really did rise from the dead or what have you, if that's what persuades you, you can be unpersuaded by new evidence that comes along. You see, and I can tell, I can tell an evidentialist from a presuppositionalist because if somebody gets all upset when they make some new discovery in space and they say, Dr. Lyle, my faith is in shambles. I just don't know how to do it with this new evidence. I'm thinking, ah, there's an evidentialist. There's somebody whose faith rests on the wisdom of men rather than on the power of God. If you're presuppositional, you can say, well, wait a minute. They wouldn't have been able to make any discovery in space if the Bible weren't true. You see, there's always going to be an explanation for that anyway. But we need to get back to... uh, 1 Corinthians 2.5, we need to recognize that what you lead people by is what you lead people to. If you lead people by a standard that says your mind is the ultimate standard, you lead them to a position of thinking that their mind is the ultimate standard for truth. And that causes all kinds of problems. You end up with old earth creation or theistic evolution because they say, well, these parts of the Bible I think are not quite right, you see. And so you end up having a very low view of Scripture. Presuppositionalism, however, is very different because it has a very high view of Scripture. In fact, it would say that the Bible is our ultimate standard for all truth claims, being divine revelation from God. And so we shouldn't lead people by an approach that says their mind is the ultimate standard. And again, some people, again, would recognize, they'd say, well, yeah, I know the Bible is the ultimate standard. It's just when I'm, when I'm trying to persuade someone, we, we pretend it isn't. But that's inconsistent. Because you're, you're, you're telling the person your mind is able to determine truth and then you lead them to the conclusion that your mind is not the ultimate standard for truth. You see, it's inconsistent. Presuppositional apologetics is very different. Presuppositional apologetics rests on the authority of Scripture and acknowledges the depravity of the unregenerate mind. The presuppositionalist doesn't go around saying, yes, but. He says, no, you're wrong and you need to repent. And when you repent, then you'll start to understand. And that seems backwards to us, right? We need to understand these things first and then then we'll repent. Actually, if God doesn't give you repentance, you're not going to understand it because our mind is depraved. We don't want to understand the things of God. In our, in our sin nature, that's what it comes down to. So again, I'm not suggesting that you have to use every single nuance that I've used and, you know, in terms of, you know, do I make a case that laws of logic and those things are, require the Christian worldview? Not necessarily specifically, but you should make the case that the, that the Bible is the ultimate standard for knowledge because it says it is. And any worldview that denies that ends up reducing to foolishness. Evidentialists like to use probability arguments. Now, I'm not against all types of probability arguments. I think there's a use for them, particularly if you use them in a presuppositional way, according to the don't answer answer strategy. There's a way to do that. But I do have a problem with people saying, because of this evidence, the Christian worldview is very likely to be true. And that's the way most evidentialists argue. It's very probable that Jesus rose from the dead. Well... There's a problem with that, right? If it's very likely that Jesus rose from the dead, that means there's some possibility that he didn't. Well, the probability of a cell forming by chance is exceptionally low. Well, 
then it's, if it's low, it's not zero. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there are, there are evolutionists who say, yes, we're well aware of the fact that the probability of a cell forming by chance is exceptionally low, but you know what? It only had to happen once. And a lot of them hold to that anyway. You see, there are four problems I'm going to argue with probability arguments. The first is that the probability you assign is determined by your worldview. It's, it's funny, you know, people say, well, it's very unlikely that Jesus, or it's very, very likely that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how, can you put a number on that? Is it 99%? Is it 97.3%? And how did you arrive at that number? It's all very subjective, isn't it? And very worldview dependent. A person who works at a morgue would say, I've never seen a dead body come. I've seen a lot of dead bodies come through. I've never seen one come back to life. So the way I figure it, the probability that Jesus rose from the dead, I've seen a thousand bodies come through here, not one of them's, so it's at least one in, one in a thousand, right? A thousand to one that he didn't rise from the dead. The probability is worldview dependent. Second, you haven't proved anything. If you say it's very likely that Jesus rose from the dead, you haven't proved anything. You haven't proved that he rose from the dead. You haven't. And if you give the unbeliever a way out, he will take it. Right? Let's say you argue, according to my calculations, the chance of evolution being true is one in a googleplex. He'll say, yeah, there's a chance. See? It could be true. People will take it. See, probability leaves open possibility. And that's, that's a problem. Third, it won't necessarily lead to the right conclusion. There have been people, believe it or not, who have been convinced. And they say, yeah, I guess Jesus did rise from the dead. And then you say, well, see, so you got to be a Christian. They said, oh, no, no, no. Just apparently, sometimes the chemistry is right that that apparently can happen. But they don't, they don't accept the whole Christian worldview then, you see. It doesn't always lead to the right conclusion. And fourth, what does the Bible teach about the probability of the Christian faith? Does the Bible teach that its words are merely very likely to be true? Does it ever say that? Did Jesus ever take that position? Well, very probably this is what happened. Never. What does the Bible have to say? Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Proverbs 22.21, to make you know the certainty of the words of truth. Luke 1.4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Acts 2.36, one of my favorites. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with very high probability. No, no. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Bible doesn't give allowance for any probability that it could be wrong. Not at all. If it's only very likely that the Bible is true, then that means there's some possibility that it's not true. And that would leave the unbeliever with a reason to doubt the biblical God. He would have an excuse on Judgment Day, right? If 99% of the evidence pointed to Scripture, and then there's this 1% that doesn't, then the unbeliever could stand before the throne and he said, well, you know, I wasn't sure. Granted, there was 99%, but I was, I was hoping for that 1%. I guess I was wrong, but you can see it was an honest mistake there. He would have an excuse on Judgment Day, wouldn't he? Does the Bible say people will have an excuse on Judgment Day? Romans 1.20, last part, so they are without excuse. You see, the Bible doesn't leave any possibility that it could be wrong. God can't be mistaken because his mind determines truth. Our minds are different. Our minds receive truth, and we make mistakes in the way we do that, but not God. God's mind determines what is true. I find it interesting as well that the Bible actually contains examples of evidential thinking and presuppositional thinking. 
And not all of these are in the context of apologetics per se, but in terms of what is your ultimate standard? Is it God's word or is it your own mind? The Bible gives examples of both. Some examples of evidential thinking. Eve was evidential in her thinking. Thomas was evidential in his thinking, at least quasi-evidential. Let's go with the Eve first. Eve, of course, was presented with really an apologetic situation. The word of God had been challenged by Satan. And how did Eve respond to this challenge of God's word? Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he, and he ate. Ah, so on the one, see, she's got this, she's got this dilemma, right? She's got, on the one hand, she's got the God hypothesis. God says, you eat from that tree, you're going to surely die. Then she's got the Satan hypothesis. Satan comes along and says, no, you're not going to die. And she says, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to determine this for myself. I'm going to use my senses, right? She saw it's good for food. She's losing her eyes. I'm going to use my senses and my mind to determine which one of these two is lying to me. And you know, the funny thing is, we're inclined to be sympathetic to Eve because we think, well, how, she, how could she have known? <laughs> well, no one's saying she shouldn't have thought about it. She should have thought about it. But if she'd have thought rationally and morally, she would have realized, of course, Satan would have to be lying because, you see, Eve was trying to use her senses to determine truth. Who made Eve's senses? God did. Eve was trying to use her mind to determine truth. Who made Eve's mind? God did. If God's dishonest... Would Eve have any reason to trust her senses or her mind? You see the inconsistency there? If God were dishonest, Eve would have no reason to trust her senses or her mind by which she then goes and tries to judge God. See, it's irrational. Eve's decision was not only immoral, it was irrational. She should have, she should have recognized, no, wait a minute. If God's word isn't true, I can't know anything because he made my senses, he made my mind. If he's not telling me the truth, I can't know anything. Satan, you're a liar. That's the way she should have responded. The entire human race could have been saved at the outset if Eve had been presuppositional. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's true. What about Thomas? Thomas is an excellent example of an evidentialist. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There's an evidentialist mindset right there. You want me to believe Jesus rose from the dead? That's fine. I'm willing to consider that hypothesis, but you need to present me with evidence that I can see and evaluate by my own senses and by my own mind. And, of course, the interesting thing is Jesus did appear to him, and, and then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here and your... Uh, hear your hand and put into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And some people have thought, well, see there, Jesus is endorsing Thomas's evidentialism, but I don't think that that's a reasonable way to look at it. I think this is an example of the Lord's graciousness. Thomas was acting sinfully, and Jesus, because he loved Thomas, he did come down and condescend to that standard, but that doesn't mean that Thomas should have responded in that way. In fact, what Jesus says next, I think, confirms that Thomas's approach was not the right approach because he goes on to say, of course, Thomas does accept him, right? He says, uh, he answered and said to him, my, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, do you get the, do you get the implication there? That's a soft rebuke because the implication is that Thomas missed out on a blessing 
because he didn't respond in the right way. He didn't respond faithfully. He decided that his mind and his senses were in a position to judge the scriptures. The scriptures predicted Christ's resurrection. Christ himself predicted his own resurrection, right? And Thomas should have accepted it on that basis. The fact that God must be honest, because if he isn't, we couldn't know anything. Our, our minds having been made in God's image and our senses having been designed by God. Thomas's approach, I'm going to argue, was sinful, and he missed out on a blessing as a result of it. Now, of course, Jesus can forgive that, and apparently he did, but that doesn't make it right. The Bible also gives us example of presuppositional apologetics. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was masterful, masterful at presuppositional apologetics. And if you want to see a great case of it, look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 30, where Paul decimates the worldview of the people that he's speaking to. They were, they were secular Greek in their thinking. And he uses the don't answer, answer strategy in the best way that has probably happened aside from the ministry of Christ himself. I and mean, it's, it's wonderful. And I have, I don't think we'll have time for it. I had all these verses listed out just in case I should have extra time. But so far I've never had any extra time. <laughs> but, uh, but let's go to Christ though, because Christ in his earthly ministry was solidly presuppositional. Christ never appealed to a standard other than the Bible as superior to the Bible. And again, there's nothing wrong with having other standards. It's just they need to submit to the word of God. God's word is the best. It's the, it's the, it's the only infallible standard. So let me just show you an example of this. In Matthew 4, verse 3, the tempter, Satan, came and said to him, If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. I'm willing to consider the hypothesis that you may be the son of God, right? But I'm going to need some evidence, Okay, <laughs> the fact that it had been predicted scripturally and that Jesus fulfilled all the things that the Bible said, that wasn't good enough. I want evidence that I can see right here, right now. And of course, it's not that Satan really doubted that Jesus was the son of God. He just wanted to see if he could get him to appeal to a different standard. Some, if he can get him to judge God's word by some allegedly greater standard. And it's certainly turning uh, stones into bread, that would be a wonderful evidence that Jesus is, is God. He could have, he had the power to do that. But I like the way that Jesus responds. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus didn't, for a moment, he wasn't fooled by Satan. He didn't, for a moment, accept the standard of the fool. Right? Instead, he, he stood boldly on the word of God. And, I, and it's interesting because the, the section of God's scripture that he quotes, which is Deuteronomy 8.3, tells us that we're to live by God's word. So not only did he, he, he demonstrated the very thing that he's quoting, which I think is wonderful. Man shall not live on bread alone, on just, you know, these external evidence. There's nothing wrong with bread, nothing wrong with external evidence. But that's not what we live by. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which, of course, would be an indication of the, the scriptures. Satan comes back again and said, oh, yeah, okay, right, you can, you can quote scripture. I can quote scripture. So he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, I'm willing to consider that, that you may be what the Bible says you are, but I want to see some evidence, and certainly this would be miraculous evidence. This would convince me that you really are the son of God. And again, how does Christ respond? Does he say, yes, okay, we can appeal to your unbiblical standard? That's not what he says. He says... On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't that interesting? He's there quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. You don't want to outscripture Jesus. It's not going to work, right? <laughs> he knew his Bible. He knew it well. He'd, he inspired it in the first place after all. See, Jesus' response here is thoroughly presuppositional. Thoroughly. 
Because not at any point does he go over and stand on the unbeliever's standard. Now, occasionally he would do it in the sense of a hypothetical to show the, the silliness of it, right? Jesus knew how to use the don't answer answer strategy. Don't get me wrong. These are mainly examples of the don't answer part. He's not embracing the standard of the critic. But he did know how to do it for the sake of argument. When they asked him by what authority he baptized, right? He said, by what authority do your sons baptize, right? He says, you know, it's by, it's by Satan that you're casting out Satan. Don't answer, answer. He says, no, if I were casting out Satan by Satan, he'd be divided against himself and he cannot stand. On the other hand, if I were hypothetically casting out Satan by, by Satan, then who, who do your sons cast, cast demons out by? And however they, if they, well, if they say, what's well, the power of God, then he wins. And if they say, well, it's Satan, then they condemn themselves. You see, Jesus knew how to use the don't answer, answer strategy. And he used it masterfully throughout his earthly ministry. I'm going to argue that these other methods, these evidential methods, classical, what have you, really are putting God to the test. Now, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say that God can't be tested or that the Bible can't be tested. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God has given tests by which we can confirm that he is God. And one of those is he says that his word makes knowledge possible. And we can see that. We've demonstrated that the last few weeks. We've seen how logic and science and all these things, morality, all presuppose a biblical worldview. So God has laid out tests for himself, which he then fulfills, right? God can measure himself, but he's going to use his own ruler to do it. We can't measure anything without asking for God's ruler. It's interesting. You know, people come out, I'm going to show you, God, that you don't match up to your own, you're immoral. I'm going to show you you don't measure up. Can I, can I borrow your ruler, please? We're going to have to borrow God's standard, you see, to measure anything else. And that's the point. And so I'm going to argue that these other evidential methods really are unbiblical because they're putting God to the test. They're using some external standard that is allegedly superior to God's word to test God's word. And that's unbiblical, folks. That just isn't biblical. Now, that being said, a lot of the books, a lot of the arguments that evidentialists like to use, a lot of times you can, you can tweak those and use them in a presuppositional way. There's a way to do, there is a way to do that. And you can, you know, put them into the don't answer, answer strategy and so on. Uh, but my point is you should never deviate from standing on God's word as your ultimate authority. The Bible teaches that we must start with God's standard in order to know anything. And the Bible tells us that in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the flip side is you reject God's wisdom and his instruction. The Bible says you're a fool. That's the flip side. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.8, see to it no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And this, of course, is in the context of these treasures of wisdom and knowledge mentioned in verse 3. Uh, Verse 8, the way it's worded in Greek, it's really, see to it no one takes you captive. It's really like, see see to it no one mugs you. It's like getting mugged. Well, what are you being robbed of? You're being robbed of what he's just been talking about, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How would you be robbed of knowledge? Through philosophy and empty deception, through all philosophy? Is Paul Paul against philosophy? A lot of people read that verse and they think Paul's against philosophy. That's not what it says. Read it carefully. He's not against philosophy. He's, he says, don't be mugged by philosophy or robbed by philosophy. That is according to the tradition of men. Secular philosophy is what Paul's warning us about. Philosophy just means love of knowledge. The Bible commends loving knowledge. And then, of course, rather than according to Christ, which implies there's a philosophy that is according to Christ. And that's what we should be following. We should be thinking God's thoughts after him, as it were. But Paul is warning us that we can be robbed of wisdom and knowledge if we're taken captive by this empty deception, the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles, the Greek word there, stoichia, which is really 
it really means presuppositions. That's really what it is. It's the basic building blocks of everything else. So uh, the presuppositions of the world will rob you of your knowledge. I'm going to skip some of these things for time's sake. But my point here is that if you could prove the Bible from some other standard, then the Bible isn't true. You realize that? If evidentialism is the right approach, then the Bible is wrong, in which case why are you trying to defend it at all? That's what I want to know. The evidentialist attempts to show that the Bible is the ultimate authority by starting from the assumption that it isn't, and that is not rational. Uh, I wanted to deal briefly with some objections to the method, and I won't have time for many. We, we previously talked about uh, the objection that it's circular reasoning, right? And we saw that actually everybody reasons in a somewhat circular fashion when it comes to an ultimate standard. There's no getting away from that. But ultimately, your ultimate standard, you know, I know P because of Q because of R because of S because of T, your ultimate standard, let's say it's T, it can't be defended from something more basic because then it wouldn't be ultimate, right? And so it has to be defended. It has to, it has to be self-attesting. And the Bible is exactly that because the Bible not only confirms itself, but it makes knowledge possible. So it's not just this little tight, the Bible says it's true because it's true. That's not the kind of argument I'm making. I'm making the argument that the Bible is true because it makes all of knowledge possible. Now, that is somewhat circular because the Bible tells me that, that the Bible makes knowledge possible, but it also demonstrates it. Because any other worldview can't justify logic and morality and, and science and so on. And we saw that, that God himself must reason in a circular fashion because he's God and there is no greater standard, right? Hebrews 6.16, men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Men appeal to a greater standard. They swear, so help me God, greater standard. But God, what does he do? For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Yes, God does reason in a circular fashion because he's God and there is no, there's no one greater. And so when he's going to appeal to a standard, the only standard he can appeal to is himself. There is no other. Now, other worldviews will circle back, but they'll blow themselves up. That's the difference between the Christian worldview and these other worldviews. So when somebody says, well, you're using circular reasoning, I'm going to point out, I'm going to say everybody uses a degree of circular reasoning. And you do too. See, my point is we either reason within the Christian circle or you don't reason at all because it's the only worldview that makes reasoning possible. I have several different possible objections that people use, but I, I'm going to do just one more and then we'll call it a day. Um, what, about, what about this one? The objection that, uh, well, presuppositionalists say it's possible to prove the Bible, but don't we need to have faith? And that that objection really comes from a misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith is not fideism. Fideism is when you just jump on something and you believe it, okay? And uh, believing for the sake of believing. You don't really have a reason. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is when you have confidence in something you have not perceived with your senses. And so these misconceptions that people have of faith, well, faith is believing what you know ain't true, which I think is attributed to Mark Twain. And uh, faith takes over where reason leaves off. You, you reason so far and then you make a leap of faith. That's not biblical faith. Or I know it's true by faith, which isn't really saying anything. That's not the biblical definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When you have confidence in something you have not perceived with your senses, that is faith. And I have great confidence in the Bible because it's a provable faith, you see. But it's still something I can't see with my senses. I haven't seen God in a visible sense, but I know he exists. And I have no doubt about that. Because all reasoning rests on a type of faith, including laws of logic, and it's the biblical worldview that makes that possible. So it's not reason versus faith. A lot of people will try to contrast those two. It's, it's because I have faith that I can reason. As Augustine put it, I believe so that I may understand. And he was right about that anyway. Uh, reason rests on faith. And it's not just any faith. 
It's the biblical faith. These other worldviews, it won't work. Islam, not going to work. If you have faith in Allah, you, it doesn't make knowledge possible. It won't. It has to be the biblical God. And nothing else will do. Well, we need to wrap it up. Uh, a lot of great resources that you can get on this. Anything by Greg Bonson, of course, I highly recommend. Uh, he's got a book called Always Ready, which is a wonderful resource on this topic, as well as the Bonson-Stein debate. If you want to see this method of apologetics in action, it's a great resource. Now, in terms of ones that we brought here today, I'm going to show you some of those. We have The Ultimate Proof of Creation, which is my book on this topic. Yes, we do have it for you out front. So uh, please uh, take a look at that. So if you want to get that, I'd be happy to sign it for you if you like. And I'm going to stick around after second service. So if you have questions, we can chat. chat. be happy to talk with you about those. Understanding Genesis. If you want to use this method and you want to use it on your Christian friend, he claims he's a Christian, but he's not really thinking consistently when it comes to Genesis. He says, I don't think Genesis is really true as written, or I don't think the days were really days. This is going to show you how to use presuppositional hermeneutics, really, to, to reason with them. Uh, discerning truth, how to spot logical fallacies in, in arguments that evolutionists often use. Very, very effective uh, uh, debate strategy. Very, very helpful. If you say, I don't have time to read a book, I understand. We have DVDs as well. We have uh, Your Origins Matter, which is going to show you why the Genesis issue is so very important uh, to be able to defend. Secret Code of Creation, if you want to see it, one aspect of presuppositional apologetics in action, this is it. It's going to show you how fractals are an illustration of the truth of the Christian worldview and have absolutely no secular explanation whatsoever. Very, very powerful. Uh, my expertise is in astronomy. I have a book called Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, which is just how to enjoy the night sky better as a Christian. If you want to know what the constellations are and what to look for this time of year and when is the Perseid meteor shower. And if you want to get a telescope, what kind you might want to get. But if you don't, that's fine. It's a lot of naked eye stuff as well. So it's a great resource. And then Taking Back Astronomy, which is going to show you how the evidence confirms biblical creation. And, of course, I do that in a presuppositional way. So you can see how that all works out. So it's been a pleasure. Uh, Thank you very much for having me out here to speak. I really appreciate it.